This episode contains a non-monetary ad swap with fellow podcast Mac Geek Gab. When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is episode 222, The Transitional Web with Chris Ferdinandi. This episode is jam-packed with a ton of goodies. We're going to be talking to Chris all about his views on where the web is at, is it in a transition, what a transition means, how the web evolves over time in general, and all sorts of things like that. So if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon, leave a review or rating on your podcast app, join us in our Discord server, or share this with your friends. And this week, like I just said, we, re- we welcome Chris Ferdinandi back onto the show. He previously appeared way back in episode 150, which I think was last year, where we discussed his take on how modern JavaScript was ruining the web. Today, he's back to discuss where the web is at today. And he believes it is currently in a state of transition. What does that mean? Well, let's cut to that interview right now and find out. That's right, everybody. We have Chris on the line here, and we have a loaded episode all about the transitional web. So, Mike, you wrote up the questions for this episode. Why don't you take it away and ask Chris some questions about what the transitional web is? Yeah, absolutely. And before we start, Chris... Welcome on the show. Great to have you back again. Last time we had a great episode. So what have you been up to since then? I'll just kind of let you reintroduce yourself to the crowd. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much. Um, so hey, everyone. I'm Chris Ferdinandi. Um, if you're not familiar with me from the last episode, uh, I help people learn vanilla JavaScript or platform native JavaScript. And my mission is to help people learn a simpler and more resilient way to build things for the web. Um, so a big part of kind of my my ethos or approach to things is that a lot of modern web best practices are potentially overcomplicated um, and maybe harming the web. Uh, so I um, I focus on ways to make that better. And uh, if that's something that interests you, you can find out more um, over at GoMakeThings.com where I publish a daily uh, newsletter. And thank you for that. And ironically, the one of the contracts that I'm working on right now, I was just telling the guys... Uh, there's some real serious overcomplication going on over there. <laughs> and because <laughs> of that, they're having some serious issues. So this is a very yeah. topical episode personally for me because mm-hmm. I have a lot to say on the topic. And uh, Chris, you wrote a great blog post. I've uh, I've read it over a few times now. And I just want to kind of dive in and get your mind, get what your mindset is, why you think kind of the way you do right now. And I, I agree with a yeah. lot of what you're saying too. But first of all, you mentioned a lot about like the state, the web is in a state of transition, right? Yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit? What are your thoughts? Yeah. So um, every five to 10, 10 is probably a bit too extreme, but every like five to seven years, um, I, I feel like I've done this long enough now where I've seen a few of these kind of waves of change happen. And they're at a pretty predictable cadence where... Um, People will want to do some new stuff and some tools will come in to help them do those things. And then those tools kind of, some of them drop out, some of them emerge as kind of clear leaders. Um, uh, you know, it's like one of those like developers vote with their feet kind of thing. Um, and, or I guess lines of code in our case. Um, and uh, then over time, as those things become normalized, the platform browsers themselves start to absorb some of these features. Uh, the most notable example of this happened with jQuery, where DOM manipulation used to be really, really absurdly hard. Even something like getting an element by something other than an ID or toggling classes on an element used to be painfully hard, especially in a cross-browser way. And now we have tons of native methods that do those things. And they were informed by jQuery. A lot of what we have in the web today uh, you know, exists because of jQuery. Um, but um, 
you know, over time as the platform absorbs those things, the need for those tools starts to go away. Um, and so jQuery is obviously still on the web today. There are still tons of sites that are run by it. But there was this weird period of time where uh, the browser had picked up a lot of features, but it still couldn't do everything that jQuery would do. And people were kind of feeling like, oh, I don't need this whole library to do just this one or two things. And so you started to see uh, what I, I call transitional tools kind of spring up to fill the gap. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the the ones that um, most notably jumps to mind for me that there's still a web page for is called Umbrella JS, and it aimed to be like a jQuery Lite. It had a very similar syntax, but it did a narrower set of things and provided some convenience methods and some chaining and things like that. Um, of course, uh, you don't really hear about Umbrella JS now. It was kind of a big deal at the time that it came out, but you don't you don't hear much about it today because um, you know people moved on and we have kind of a, a new set of problems emerged and a new set of tools, most notably state-based UI libraries came to kind of their moment of dominance. And so this is all a long-winded way of saying that I feel like we're on the cusp of another one of these um, where the platform is not necessarily absorbing all of the things that libraries used to do, but it's starting to pick up some of the features. I'm hopeful that it will pick up more. And we're starting to see a new set of tools that aim to do a lot of the same stuff that like React and Vue and, and Angular do, but in a leaner, lighter, more performant kind of way, which was the same goal of those transitional tools about seven years ago um, when jQuery was kind of at its peak. Um, so yeah, that's for me, that's the transitional web. Um, I think we're in another point of transition or actually at the very, very start of one. Do you think it's a, it's going to be a consistent thing? Like is it, is the web ever going to mature to the point where we're not going to need these constant five-year transitions or is this just a normal, you know, this is no normal life cycle for any development tool. So I think this is the way of the web. Um, it's, it's by its very nature kind of ever changing. Um, and for me, that's at least as a developer, that's one of the most exciting things about it is I never, I never feel bored. One thing I, I wish would change is, um, well, so I'm of two minds on this, but, um, I, I kind of hate our obsession with shiny new objects. Like we love tools and we're always chasing the next big tool. Um, uh, and so I, it sometimes bothers me how slow the platform is to absorb features. But on the flip side, um, I, I understand why, because once you bake it into the platform, you have to maintain it forever because the web is really big on backwards compatibility, unless you're the marquee element. Um, and then, well, even then actually it still works even though it's deprecated. But um, uh, the, um, you know, the other aspect here is that, you know, these tools allow us to kind of experiment in real time. Uh, and then, the the stuff that survives is what ultimately gets absorbed into the platform. Um, so like that's kind of neat. I think the thing that that really sucks about that process is the tools never really go away, even when they don't need to exist anymore. So like jQuery, just in the last year or two, um, finally started seeing a decline in like the amount of sites that use it and the amount of downloads it has and like how often it's being loaded, even though for easily the last five to seven years, the platform could do almost everything that jQuery could do. Um, uh, you know, it's one of these, like once, once you build something with it and it's on the web, it just, it's there. Um, and sites that are being built with like React and Vue now will probably continue to run those for a very long time because the cost of throwing them out and starting from scratch is really, really expensive. Um, I know that's not a direct answer to your question. The question is like, you know, will this ever stop? I, I think not. I think this is just kind of the, the natural life cycle of the web. Um, and we'll repeat it forever. Um, I just wish we maybe did it a little bit differently. This is sort of the struggle between, I would say of if somebody didn't learn the vanilla stuff like JS, HTML, CSS, and they just learned jQuery, it's going to be a difficult pill for them to swallow to leave. And so as long as jQuery is there, they're going to be continuing to do work, especially if they're a freelancer in which they're not going to an office where that office may go through the motions of upgrading every like five to seven years, like you're saying, 
Mm-hmm. Maybe they're, you know, they're just like, well, like jQuery, jQuery works, you know, it's a, a, it works in my word in my WordPress site. It works in my just the, whatever custom sites. So I'm just going to keep using jQuery. Why would I learn something different? Whereas Mike and I have always preached, you know, if you learn the vanilla, you can always fall back on that. You can always transition between technologies faster. Yeah, I was actually on a roundtable um, sometime, I want to say last year now, where that was the very conversation, like, is jQuery dead? And uh, I was the lone dissenting voice saying, yes, we don't need it anymore. <laughs> um, and the like, the big arguments were like, there was someone who worked in an agency and they had a whole suite of tools they had built around jQuery like seven years ago that allowed them to do a lot of the common stuff that comes up with clients easier and faster. And so for them to kind of rebuild that whole tool set from scratch, that's a whole bunch of time that they're not able to bill hourly for their clients. Um, you know, so it, it, there was no incentive for them to move on from it. Um, I met someone else who does work primarily in WordPress and jQuery is already baked into the platform and most or platform being WordPress in this case, not the browser. And, um, you know, most WordPress sites use at least one plugin that auto loads jQuery as part of its, like there's kind of this, like this chicken and egg thing where, um, plugin authors always end up just using jQuery because they figure it's already being loaded on the front end because other plugins use it. And so it never goes away. And now that WordPress powers, like, I don't know, it's not literally 90% of the web, but it's some like really high high number. Um, you know, it just keeps pushing that tool's use. Um, and I think we're going to see the same thing with tools like React, um, where we have a whole ton of, it's not like the, it's not React itself, but the whole ecosystem around it that will keep it deeply hooked into the web for a while, in my opinion, um, where you've got lots of components and other third-party tools that hook into it um, that developers become very dependent on because they make their life faster and easier. Um I, I've I've heard the phrase developer experience over user experience used to describe the effect where we we prioritize our ease as developers over kind of uh, the experience for the people using the things we build. It's a really good even, point. You can even talk about that in in just WordPress itself too. Sorry to cut you off there, Mike, mm-hmm. but just you were talking about WordPress having the having jQuery baked in and and, and the plugins mm-hmm. pulling on them, but. Even just in the WordPress experience, WordPress has been trying to uh, push uh, the block editor, uh, Gutenberg, I think is what it's called, uh, for <laughs> yeah. a while. And there's there's an official plugin by the WordPress development team to bring back the classic editor. And I'm one of those people where I don't like the block editor. I think it's a liability for my customers because I don't want them to mess up a block and then call me. So I put the classic editor in there and then I control things the old way with uh, – or what I would call the old way with ACF and um, – uh, it, the uh, custom post type UI and stuff like that, where I'm like very much controlling what they're doing and then just letting them be in a rich text field. And that's the that's the extent of what I how I let them edit their page. And, you know, that's really a, a developer experience thing where they could be building out their own full pages or at least have a, a lot more customizability on those pages if I just let them have the block editor for sure. That plugin is the first thing I install on every every one of my WordPress sites too, even for <laughs> myself. I just prefer the classic experience, but I'm old, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But like, okay, so we talked about how um, you know, the the web is kind of, you know, React now. It used to be WordPress jQuery. Now we have this situation with React where it's probably going to be baked into mm-hmm. a lot of projects moving down the line. I kind of I want to bring it to the bloated web versus lean web discussion, right? So, yeah. assuming that the client side rendered frameworks like React, like Vue, uh, like Angular, that do a lot of the client side rendering right on the client and make it so that some people with slow computers can have a bad experience, or people with slow connections can have an even worse experience, uh, is that what you mean with the bloated web stuff, or is there a lot more to it? That's That's a big part of it. I kind of break it into two buckets. So on one end, you've got the end user experience, um, which is what you just described. We're shipping 30 kilobytes of minified and gzipped code that gets unpacked into several megabytes and creates a whole layer of slow and fragile on the front end. Um, The other aspect of it is honestly, in my opinion, the developer experience as well. Um, I know a lot of developers who love working with 
tools like React. In my experience, many of them are a little bit more seasoned. And uh, I work with a lot of beginners who are like, I tried to learn React and I don't think I'm cut out for this profession because none of it made sense to me. Um, you know, when uh, the, React has done a lot of work in kind of having a, you don't need to touch terminal to get started kind of experience, but um, it, it, a lot of the tutorials you find out there are open a command line prompt and, and you instantly lose so many people when you do that. Um, and anything that requires a build step just adds that much extra labor for people who are kind of learning or earlier in their career. Um, uh, you guys mentioned Gutenberg. One of the big, um, you know, one of the big things we saw with these tools is they um, they alienate web professionals who are not strictly developers from the process as well. And Gutenberg is a great example of that. Uh, Gutenberg, uh, the WordPress editor, is built on React, and uh, when it was first launching, the uh, the accessibility lead um, for that, uh, you know, for for the WordPress project, um, ended up resigning because they previously used to be able to just go in and make edits to accessibility issues that they found. And uh, with React, nobody on the team had experience with that. They couldn't find any volunteers in the community uh, who had experience. And um, you know, they ended up going from being able to just go in and make updates to having to file tickets against you know a developer team that was aggressively working to just build the thing. And so when Gutenberg shipped, it had massive amounts of accessibility errors, um, uh, many of which took a long time to fix. I think there might actually still be some kind of in the project. And uh, yeah, so it it made the experience worse from a like a developer experience or DX kind of angle as well. Um, and so that's also what I mean. Like we went from, I can open a text editor and a browser, code a site and push it up with FTP to... Um, this really kind of complicated command line, build tool, continuous integration kind of thing. And I do a lot of that and it's great for certain things, but it also makes a much more bloated experience um, or at least an experience that requires a lot more setup um, uh, than, than it used to. Um, and I'm sure anybody who's joined a new company is familiar with that experience of spending your first week just getting your computer and dev environment set up instead of <laughs> writing actual code. And like it sucks. It's it's when you're someone who just wants to dive into the code. It's a really uh, demotivating kind of experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I think that is a huge issue right now in the industry. I know again, new the contract that I started recently. That was my experience for the first three days setting up the dev environment. And it's still an issue for new developers that are coming in. I, I, I like your take on like that barrier that command line adds to the project or to just learning development. And it really is mm -hmm. a serious barrier. I know, Matt, you, uh, you and I have talked about this a few times where like adding that, you know, on top of learning HTML, CSS, JavaScript, on top of learning Git, adding the whole continuous integration and build steps and stuff like that, that I think you're right. Like to some people that might be insurmountable, not to the degree that they could never learn that, but to the degree that it might roadblock them for a long time to the point where they just don't want to get past that. Whereas when we learned development and this is dating ourselves, it was just opening up index.php or index.html <laughs> and writing code and then pushing it up in, in uh, with FileZilla and that's it. So it was a lot simpler and now it's like, it's gotten more complicated and other tools are coming on like Netlify and Vercel that are trying to make the complicated stuff more simple, but sometimes mm -hmm. they make it even more complicated. So it's this web of intricacy <laughs> that's hardly hanging on together uh, that just keeps kind of evolving to the point where, yeah, I, I kind of agree to the sense that a lot of what we're doing right now is bloated. But another question that I have based on this is like you said that you still use some of the quote unquote bloated infrastructure, bloated tools, yeah. but obviously you use the lean web as well. Is there like a line that you draw in the sand where like this, this is something that I would use a more like, you know, robust tool and yeah. this is something that I would just use a file for. Yeah. So the, um, you know, the the undercurrent of the response I'm going to give is that um, I feel like these tools have become so entrenched that there's this de facto, you just grab them for everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I like to avoid using 
the more complex stuff until there's a compelling reason to do so. So, um, uh, you know, for me, I, I've had a build step for a while, but I used, um, uh, I used a GUI based tool to handle it for ages. Like I, I was rocking a code kit on Mac OS for several years to do my compiling of SAS into CSS and bundling of modular JavaScript files. Um, and I eventually switched over to a command line tool because I started doing more open source work and outputting one file into multiple formats was a lot more difficult with code kit than it needed to be. And uh, command line provided me with a way way to do that easily. And then I took a step back from it after a while because I had been using Gulp for ages and uh, Every time I'd go back to a project I hadn't touched in three minutes or three months, rather, I had to spend <laughs> um, three minutes is maybe a little uh, tongue in cheek accurate, but I'd have to spend like 30 minutes just fixing broken like build stuff to be able to go edit a line of CSS. And that was getting really annoying. Um, uh, and so now I'm, I'm running a very minimal set of like scripts directly from NPM uh, node package manager that do what I want. Um, and so, so even when I'm using these build tools, I try to make them as minimal as possible. Um, I do have a continuous integration setup uh, for my. I use static site generators for most of my websites now, um, and so I have something that, when I push things to Git, sends a webhook to my server that automatically pulls the latest version, compiles those HTML files, and drops them into my public folder where they can be loaded. Um, but uh, you know, for me, I um, I really like knowing how my tools work under the hood. So, like, you guys talked about Netlify and Vercel, and like, Netlify is a great example of a tool that makes a lot of that hard stuff that I do just like kind of manually on my own servers. It, it they do it for you, and it's awesome until things break, <laughs> right? So, like, um, if you're someone who knows how to do that stuff on your own already, it can be relatively easy to debug what's wrong in a tool like Netlify. Uh, if you're someone who doesn't know those things and you use a tool like Netlify because you don't, when things break, it becomes way harder to tra track down like what's going wrong and why um, and, and whatnot. So um, I have a tendency to build a lot of my own tools. Like my, my deploy process is, I think it's like a 20 line PHP file. Um, that just sits on my server and receives a webhook from GitHub and then does some stuff in response. Um, and I went with that approach because I really liked the fact that I could see what every line of the process was doing. And if something breaks, I can usually go in and patch it myself um, because it's just this really simple kind of one-liner. I know that's not necessarily sustainable for teams and there's plenty of reasons why you'd want to use this more robust infrastructure. Um, but uh, yeah, for me, kind of that, I've as I've gotten older and I've gotten a little bit more skilled, my line of like when to reach for tools is I um I reach for tools when my ability to do it myself um you know in like a few hours of kind of putting together something uh is exceeded. So for example, I still use third-party libraries for complex uh, visual media on the web. Like if I have to do some sort of interactive photo gallery with like images that can expand and zoom in and out and that kind of thing, I'll still use a JavaScript library for that because coding that up would be really, really hard for me. Um, but a lot of the other stuff, I, I'd, I'd rather build it myself because I like being able to patch it when things go wrong because things will always go wrong. It's like the number one rule of the web. If you build it, it will break. That's just, <laughs> that's just how it, how it goes. Um, and, uh, you know, so if, if there's a message here for me, I think one of the kind of the missed things about developer experience is that it's not just about glazing over that complexity. Um, it's about making, making an experience so that when things go wrong, the person kind of trying to work with it can easily fix it. Um, uh, yeah, that's just I I feel like that's a piece that we always kind of kind of overlook. Um just as a community, not, you know, you and <laughs> you two specifically, Matt and Mike. Today I've got something for you Apple users, the Mac Geek Gab podcast. This show is in its 17th year providing tips 
cool stuff found and answers to your questions about anything and everything Apple. Yes, that's right. Hosts Dave Hamilton and John F. Braun take time each week to actually provide tech support to as many listeners as possible while learning at least five new things weekly themselves. The great part is that they always make sure each answer has actionable tips with easy instructions for listeners, too. For example, you can turn on Do Not Disturb on your iPhone by swiping down into Control Center and simply tapping that little moon icon in the focus section. Or saying Reply with Audio to Siri will let you record an audio message, which is super handy if you're in the car and you don't want to just dictate to text. If you use an iPhone, a Mac, an iPad, an Apple Watch, an Apple TV, or are simply a technology enthusiast, you're going to love learning more about your technology with your two new favorite geeks over at MacGeekGab. Get your questions answered and have some fun along the way. Visit MacGeekGab.com or search for MacGeekGab on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't get caught without having MacGeekGab in your rotation. Well, we actually, Mike and I have a, have conversations on this. Like this hits home a lot because I, I run the, the small to medium business clients that we have for the most part. And Mike's usually out there, you know, using React Review or whatever with all these tools and continuous integration. Whereas I'm existing in a world where, you know, a lot of my clients are Webflow where I don't need to deal with any of the maintenance at all. And so, you know, that, 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 like I'm sure there's a punch of, um, say overhead that they are dealing with that Webflow is dealing with, but I don't need to deal with it. But then otherwise, I'm like pretty close to the metal where uh, I'm just using WordPress or I am FTPing uh, files <laughs> up still for old sites that, you know, they just want to update their phone number or something. And they don't want a whole new site. And so I'm like right there where maybe the only thing between me and the CLI, like being right on Linux is like cPanel. And sometimes I am in the CLI and like actually in Fedora or CentOS or whatever. Um, and Mike and I will, you know, have that conversation all the time where I'm, I'm so afraid to get into using these tools because Mike will, you know, advertise, you know, they're pretty convenient. If something goes wrong, you just deal with it then. But like, of course, things go wrong even in my world where I'm close to the metal, but I, I don't need to usually question what layer it is. Usually it troubleshoot for a couple of minutes and I can tell, okay, it's the server acting up or, you know, it's the, uh, something's gone wrong in the FTP. Like when I FTP'd it up, it was corrupted or, you know, there's clearly a plugin mm-hmm. gone wrong here or it's WordPress just acting totally crazy, something like that. But I'm, I'm so worried to have that same level of troubleshooting, but have a hundred other questions like, well, is it Webpack? Did it NPM down correctly? Did it compile? Is it continuous integration? Was there a permissions problem between the two? Like right now, I don't have that. It's like everything's one step. It's like uploading's one step. Using WordPress is one step. Having a dev version of WordPress is one step. Um, and obviously, I'm simplifying to a degree, but I am worried to reach for those tools that give you a lot of convenience. But then once you need to fix it, it's no longer convenient. And it's like a 100 step troubleshooting like run. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to downplay the convenience of tools because I, you know, I do um, like I, my, my website, go is like, I think it's like three or 4,000 individual HTML pages now. And like, I'm not hand coding every single one of these because that'd be <laughs> madness. I use, you know, I use a static site generator and I have a, you know, there's some complexity involved in there that I've abstracted away. Um, and so a big, a big part of this for me is being, uh, at, at one of the things that I think gets kind of missed in our community is that tools are great. It's really important to understand that every benefit you get from a tool comes with another kind of trade-off or unintended consequence that you may want to consider. Um, and so, you know, a big part of kind of the experience around this, both for us as developers and users, is understanding what those trade-offs are and being a little bit more strategic about which ones you're comfortable with. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's been, I, it's bitten me enough times now where I've, I've kind of figured it out, but like, uh, sometimes I'll have a scheduled post that just doesn't go live on my site. Um, and I've learned now that that usually means I have some malformed, like markup or markdown specifically. Like I've usually screwed up something in my front matter, uh, in my markdown files that has caused the static site generator to like error out and not finish the build. Um, and, uh, 
you know, that's that's a point of weakness for me that is worth it because I get a whole ton of other benefits from that process. But um, you know, there are potentially other systems that are more forgiving of that sort of thing. Um, uh, and so, you know, it's just you know, WordPress, for example, right? Um, you know, uh, with a WordPress build where it's building each page on the fly, an error in one file wouldn't necessarily cause a trickle down in a bunch of other places. But uh, depending on how your WordPress setup is structured, you're also potentially a lot more vulnerable to you get a surge of traffic and the whole site crashes because the PHP builds can't handle that volume. Um, so yeah, just everything has a trade-off and understanding what those are is really important. Would you say that nothing is perfect? Like there's, there is no perfect solution right now in the web? Yes. Um, I think the closest thing to perfect we have is like literally just raw HTML, CSS, and JavaScript with an FTP client. But that doesn't work at, you know, beyond like a, a certain size or level of complexity. Like that is really, I still think that is the best choice for a lot of like marketing and brochure websites. Um, but then there comes a point where that's no longer, no longer true. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of the modern web is, yeah, I, one thing we don't, necessarily talk about enough is that a reason the reason a lot of this complexity exists is because the web is much more capable than it was when the three of us learned and um uh you know like it can handle a lot more complexity the things we're building are a lot more complex and interactive and so a lot of the tooling and processes have gotten more complex to to keep up um so you know, it's not that these things are bad, um, but yeah, there is no there is no perfect tool. There's just a bunch of a bunch of trade offs and maybe some tools that are worse than others. Um, <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, love it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I think emphasis on the point of when you're like first starting out, especially if you jump into one of these tools too early, like React or Vue, uh, and then and then jump into Netlify and Vercel without understanding what that is actually doing. And I've talked to quite a few junior engineers that are in that boat where they're like, well, it's not building. It must be a React problem, but it really is continuous integration problem or it's an environment file problem. Just jumping in too early, feet first, without understanding hosting infrastructure, without understanding any of this stuff can bite you and will bite you most likely. So I think it's really important that like, you do have those conversations with yourself, the conversation that you have, Chris, where like, I don't need these tools right now. I need to learn the basics. I need to go go through it. I need to build my own process so that I can go step by step and know when something goes wrong. Because just like, yeah, I, I've had those situations with Vercel or Netlify where something went wrong and it's all a black box. So good luck. That's essentially the end, the end of that chapter. You just have to dive deep or get help. Um, but with yeah, that... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was just, I, I just, yeah, I, I agree. Um, and the, the, I think the litmus test I use most of the time is I, I basically avoid adding any new tool into a process until like, uh, until I reach a point where like, it's just, it's too much to not have it. Um, you know, so so for me, it's it's a. I remember being new and wanting to throw all of the shiny tools at all of the things. Um, and at this point in my developer career, I I I try to avoid them until they're kind of inevitable. I think is maybe the the right phrasing. And I think that's a good that's a good kind of mentality to have at this point because it's just it's too easy to keep reaching for tools because there's a tool for literally every part of what you're doing in web development now and uh it could get way too complex by making by trying to make it simple so it's a good it's a good point but having said that uh stuff like react and view is still out there and it's not really like it i think it's growing at this point but yeah. i think in your blog post you do mention that we are starting that state of transition and i and i am seeing that myself i'm just wondering why do you think that like we're going to go away or at least stop using them as much? And I know you touched on this early on with the transition, but yeah. I kind of want to dive deeper into that. Like what's going to cause us to be like, okay, maybe we don't go to react for every project on a grand scale. Yeah. So um, there's a, there's a few, I think threads here. So the first is um, a lot of the pushback that I think we're already seeing or the, 
uh, you know, kind of the the transition here um, is being driven by. Um, well, so in the case of jQuery, it was driven by the platform absorbing a lot of the functionality. But I think in the case of things like React and Vue, it's being driven more by um, kind of the the web getting a little bit more broken. Um, so mm-hmm. um, uh, when most of your app is loaded with JavaScript, it becomes incredibly fragile and slow. And the more JavaScript you send, the more slow and fragile it becomes. Um, not for most of the developers who are doing the building because they're on really nice new machines <laughs> on really fast internet connections, but for just the general public that uses those things. Um, and uh, that costs money. So when when apps go down, when um, when apps are slow, especially if it's an e-commerce site or some sort of transactional site, people spend less time on them, spend less money on them, uh, even if you're ad revenue driven, it hurts ad revenue. Um, and, uh, you know, hosting and deploying all that JavaScript is expensive too. Um, and debugging it when things go wrong is expensive. Um, and so I've seen a handful of tools that try to get around this JavaScript is expensive problem um, that I think are kind of driving the next, the next transition. So on one end, you've got... Um, these tools that I call micro libraries. So, uh, you know, some of the some of the notable ones are Preact, which has the same API as React, but it's a tenth the size. Uh, so instead of thirty kilobytes minzipped, it's it's three kilobytes. Um, and uh, not only is it, and it does almost all of the same things, including new React hooks. Um, a new quote, not super new at this point, but newish. Um, not only is it smaller, it also renders the UI faster because it has fewer layers of abstraction in it than React proper does. Uh, it's actually substantially faster at rendering user interfaces. Uh, you've got other tools like SolidJS, which have a kind of a similar approach to React. Um, uh, there was a, um, well, there was, there is uh, a lighter weight version of U-ish called Alpine JS that um, Evan Yu, who created Vue, was so inspired by that he ended up creating his own lightweight port of Vue called Petite Vue that doesn't do all of the things of Vue, uh, but does a, a subset of them and is really aimed around instances where you're using state-based UI for progressive enhancement. So I think it's like seven kilobytes instead of 30. Um, and uh, you know it gives you a similar authoring experience to Vue uh, with less of the bloat. Uh, so you know, on one hand, you've got those. And then on the other hand, you've got these compiler-driven tools um, that uh, kind of fall into two subsets. So on one hand, you've got things like uh, Svelte and Astro, which I think are super, super interesting. So um, uh, so Svelte lets you author your user interfaces in mostly JavaScript in a state-based UI kind of way. And then... Uh, instead of shipping that code to the browser, you run a compiler that converts that that code into mostly HTML with a sprinkling of JavaScript that looks a lot like um, the way you might handwrite DOM manipulation if you were to just do it the old-fashioned way. Um, so you know, if you've got a user interface with a button that updates, you know, the number of times you've clicked it in the UI, rather than running some huge DOM diffing thing to kind of check your state against your template and what's different, Svelte will compile that out into a static button and a listener on that button that just targets the text content in the element where that con- uh, that count is displayed. Um, and so you end up with this much leaner kind of thing that gets shipped to the user. It's faster to render. It's faster to update. There's fewer things to break. Um, it works really well. And then you've got tools like Astro, which are really, really cool that work the same way as Svelte, but they also, uh, Astro allows you to plug in any, well, not any, but many JavaScript libraries into it. So you can use Svelte files in Astro. You can use Vue. You can use React. Um, you can even like mix and match them. So you could have all three of those existing in an Astro project at the same time. And when it compiles out into HTML, it throws away all of the library stuff that's not needed and spits out just the stuff that is. Um, 
Uh, so if you're someone who really likes working with those tools, but wants a better user experience, um, you know, it's kind of, you know, allows you to have the best of both worlds. Um, uh, Jason Langsdorf from whose name I'm almost certainly mispronouncing, uh, Jason, I apologize. Uh, he's from the Netlify, uh, um, developer team. And uh, he did an experiment with Astro where he took a Next.js project he had, used almost all of the same code, dropped it in Astro. And the output was, um, I think it had like 90% less JavaScript um, when, it got, when it got rendered and and uh, compiled. And um, it, uh, it was a lot faster in the client as well. Um, and then there's kind of one other little subset here um, it kind of stands on its own. Uh, it's like, I don't really know where it fits, but you've got a tool like 11D, which is officially a static site generator, but it it's built with Node and JavaScript. And because of that, it can do a lot of stuff that some of the other static site generators like Hugo and Jekyll can't. Um, so it can kind of dynamically generate pages from API requests. If you integrate it with Netlify now, it can do like edge functions where most of your stuff is pre-generated like with a static site generator, but certain parts of it get generated on the edge, on the fly. Like it's this really weird kind of hybrid tool that's kind of sort of reinventing PHP, but in like a different and maybe arguably better kind of way. Um, but all of these tools are getting at the same thing, which is let's ship less JavaScript and more already generated HTML into the browser. Um, and so I call these transitional because they're using tooling to solve a lot of stuff that I think will eventually be solved by the browser. And I'm going to shut up now because I'm sure you guys have some questions or want to pick into some stuff. Um, otherwise, I would just keep ranting for another 20 minutes. So, yeah, absolutely. I have, <laughs> I have a lot to pick into because uh, it's... <laughs> Honestly, it's such a fascinating thing because I've also exactly noticed that where it's going to, again, not only static side generation, but a little bit of server side generation as well. All this stuff that we were doing, you know, three years ago where everything was client side rendered is now <laughs> reverting back to how we handled it with PHP, you know, 10 years ago, um, but with JavaScript. <laughs> with edge functions and stuff like that. So, it's it's really, it's an interesting transition and it it does... It is looking like a transitionary phase because all these tools like Astro, that stuff is all new. It's just being, it's just been created recently. Who knows what's going to be created down the line? Uh, what, like, my, my real question, my real thought here is like, is it going to revert back to client side rendering at some point for whatever reason? Or are we going to continue to go down this path now? Because it's, I mean, we've tried client side, client side rendering. And like you said, Chris, there are some severe issues with it. I don't see us going back to it anytime soon, at least. So I'm liking the direction where we're heading. I'm just really worried that all of a sudden another framework is going to pop up and revert us back to the client side. Yeah, it's a pendulum. So um, we will, um, uh, the trajectory I see, and this is purely speculative, but the trajectory I see is that we will swing into very, uh, very either server rendered or pre-generated HTML. And then sometime three to five, you know, that that'll take us maybe like two to three years to like fully that's that's the norm and that's the best practice. And then sometime a year or three after that, someone at a big tech tech company will give a talk on some new JavaScript library they've created. No. And the pendulum will start swinging in the other direction. Um it's just the way <laughs> the way our industry has historically behaved. Um, now, we could absolutely deviate from that. Um, we don't always have to follow our past. But um, I am... You know what ends up happening, just truthfully, is there's always going to be some like interactive thing that we want to do that requires JavaScript. And then we're going to want to push it to the next level. And that's going to require... You know, either a bunch of really hard to write code or some library that abstracts it away. And then people are going to want more features in that library and the library gets bigger. And then eventually, sometime down the road, the platform hopefully absorbs many of those features, but the library is already kind of entrenched. That's what happened with React and Vue. Um, that's what happened with jQuery. It's just, it's just kind of how things go. Um, 
and it's part of a natural evolution, I think, of of the web. Um, but like, for example, even with a lot of the server side rendering that happens, there's always going to be certain kind of UI elements that I shouldn't say always, but there will likely be many kind of client side UI elements that you want to update in real time in response to user interactions. And depending on how complex they are, um, doing that with traditional DOM manipulation is hard. Um, you know, especially if you have like multiple UI elements that are updating in response to a single piece of data. Um, you know, I think about something like um, like an e-commerce site, right? Where you've got a product and an add to cart button and the quantity of items you want to up add and like a cart icon in the nav bar that shows you how many items are in your cart. And so clicking that add to cart button is going to display a message on that page or tell you that the item is already in your cart. And then the cart icon and its count are going to update too. Um, and, you know, kind of keeping track of all these, all these things is, is mapped to maybe a single cart object with the items in your cart. Um, having us get to a place where most of the stuff around that UI is server rendered. Um, and then there's some, you know, I, I can imagine a future where the browser provides some way to efficiently diff the DOM without you needing a library. Um, and I am very much looking forward to that future where, you know, it's as easy as, you know, the inner HTML property um, or the text content property to update the UI but in a way that doesn't completely wipe out every node that's there and recreate it from scratch. Um, uh, I, I, I hope we get there someday, then we can throw out all those libraries and, and things will be good again. I have kind of a, bring, oh, go ahead, Matt. I was going to say, I have a crazy theory as to why the, where, where, or I guess why the pendulum would swing back again to client side would be, uh, with the invention or I guess the rise of, uh, VR and AR, so right now yeah. you have VR headsets where if you have something like the MetaQuest 2, which is the Facebook model, uh, you'll you basically you can open up a browser and the websites will you know work and run and whatever. But as we start getting more AR and VR, I can see this becoming a problem where certainly, you know, you could server side render uh, a very specific version of a site for a mixed reality headset and some sort of Google Glass and 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 the, the list of devices goes on, MetaQuests and Vives and all the rest of it. But I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing, well, hey, these things are already like really heavy computing devices. Like they they can handle a lot of they can handle a lot. So why not have the server pass in a certain amount of parameters and have the device render appropriate to whatever display or whatever specific HUD that these VR and AR devices will use ultimately. Yeah. You can't see me, but I'm nodding really aggressively to this. And this <laughs> is what I mean by like, you know, some, some new thing will come along that really pushes the capabilities of the platform. I think VR is a really good guess. It could also be something that we couldn't predict. Like, do you remember when Steve jobs pulled out like the iPhone and suddenly mm -hmm. like internet in your pocket was this big revolutionary thing. Yeah. Um, and the idea that websites weren't just websites, they were apps, right. That could do all these amazing things. Like it was, it was like a wild west of web development. It was awesome. It was very experimental. And we started demanding a lot more capabilities and most of them required JavaScript. I, I could see VR being very much the same way. Um, uh, it could also be something else. Tim Apple may surprise us with a no. He's not. He's not the visionary type. But um, yeah, the, you know, it's just one of those like the tech is one of those things that it moves very gradually, and then every now and then there's some weird new thing that kind of breaks everything and creates a a gold rush of new stuff. Um, but either way, I suspect it will involve things that servers can't do or can't do easily. Um, most of the things we can do with client-side JavaScript could also be done on a server. They just require like, like even like form submissions, right? Like sending data to a form and then waiting for the response to come back uh, is annoying. And that's the reason why a lot of people do Ajax stuff um, with their forms, just as a kind of an example. So, um, you know, I, I'm rambling. I'm sorry. I'm going to stop. I'll turn it back over to you too.
no no that was <laughs> that was awesome and and just matt mentioning the uh the ar gave me a little bit of anxiety thinking that we'll have to like do a viewport for the eye the human eye <laughs> that's going to be uh that's going to be fun and almost a guarantee. headset compatibility right? oh. like, well think, think about, about it some of them are going to have a display some of them are going to be a hud some of them are going to like <laughs> display a widget or something instead of yeah. the whole site Right. Yeah, this our, is, our uh, job's going to get more complicated, but job security, yay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Imagine trying to be a full stack developer in the uh, <laughs> in the VR world. No. Oh, oh God. But no, thank it you. should be fun. Honestly, that's why we're here, right? Like we're <laughs> we we love the tech. We love talking about it. We love exploring it. So if new stuff didn't come out, we'd probably stop making a podcast. So bring on the VR and AR viewports. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For yep. sure. And um, final question here, Chris. What would the ideal web platform look like for you? Now, I know you mentioned yeah. it being built in, right? Like, so native support yeah. for these things. Like, for me, in my head, I'm thinking Svelte built into the browser, right? Like, that. that's how I want to write my diffs. That's how I want to do it because it's just so straightforward. For you, like, what, what are you thinking? What's the... We, we mentioned yeah. perfect recently. Is yeah, there a perfect yeah, that you can see? Yeah. So for me, the, and I don't think we'll ever get there because as soon as we get there, something new will come along and we'll <laughs> throw it all to hell. But just thinking about kind of the type of stuff that I build now, I would, I would really love a, I, it's honestly, it's not much. Um, it's not easy, but it's not much. I want some sort of native diff, function or property that allows me to say, here's how, you know, here's, here's an element and here's what the HTML inside it should look like now. Just update the things that are different and do it in the most efficient way possible. Like don't, you know, don't, don't remove focus from an existing field or focusable element. If one already has it, um, don't wipe out user content, like that kind of thing. Um, that would get me like 90% of the way there. Um, the other thing that would be really great that's actually already in the works is um, a an HTML string sanitizer API. Um, I forget exactly what it's called. Um, it's still experimental. It's it's in the works. But you know, one of the one of the things that a lot of libraries solve that is a real danger with just kind of injecting HTML into the UI is that if you've got data in it that came from a third party, it could open you up to third uh, to cross site scripting attacks. Um, and uh, you know, right now you either have to rely on kind of you know libraries' own sanitizer methods or a third-party thing like DOM Purify, which is awesome but pretty big. Um, and just having some native function to do that would alleviate a huge amount of anxiety for a lot of developers. Um, and I think between the two of those, they get you to like ninety percent of where uh, big libraries are today. Um, and would then allow you to write your uh, write your UIs in a mostly svelte kind of way, um, uh, and and uh, not have to worry so much about kind of the performance implications and the user implications. Um, and I think when you pair those with some other tools that allow you to just serve mostly HTML, um, uh, you're in a pretty good place. Yeah, For me personally, I, I had other people's workflows may be different. And I also don't think tools ever really go away. Like I, I, I don't want to have to manually combine a bunch of markdown into templates to make HTML files. I still want some sort of tool that does that for me. Um, uh, you know, I just, I, I'd like it to be a little bit leaner. Yeah. A little bit smaller. I think like, again, going back to your blog post and I recommend everyone read it. We'll have it in the show notes, but the idea is like it, the, the libraries just keep getting smaller, right? Like we don't need the jQuery example that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. jQuery was a big library. It had a lot in it. As the browser started to implement more and more of the features that jQuery implemented, we had other libraries pop up that solved the issues that were still – jQuery was still required for, but we're a lot leaner. So like two kilobytes, three kilobytes. And that's how I see it, Chris – and how you see it, it's, it seems like is that 
would be the case, right? So even if the browser were to embed all this stuff natively, there would still be smaller libraries, some, some things that you can add or not add. It's your choice. Mm -hmm. uh, that supplement the functionality that is not needed for every project, therefore is not needed to be implemented into the browser. Yeah, for sure. In an ideal world, some of these tools would just start mapping their APIs to the uh, the browser native functions under the hood. That never happens, but um, you know, it would be cool if they did. I kind of have a, I don't know, it's an, an encompassing question, I suppose, and that is, you know, we, we have a lot of junior developers that listen to this show and, um, you know, efficiency and, you know, kind of avoiding certain bloated web things, for example, kind of seems like an advanced topic, especially when you guys were going back and yeah. forth about Svelte. Like, I don't really do Svelte, so I was sort of like, OK, <laughs> but um, <laughs> so I guess my, my encompassing question is uh, for those junior devs out there is, you know, if they're on their learning journey. Do they need to worry about this stuff? Is this something where they need to get efficiency right now where it's like, hey, I need to choose the right framework, the right tools? Or is this something more of a uh, where they just sort of go at it, where they go, OK, I'm just going to learn this, 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 just like they're doing now. They're learning all yeah. the sorts of skills. And then only yeah. through experience where will efficiency sort of naturally occur? Yeah. So, um, you know. I'd be curious to hear both of your opinions on this as well. But um, <clears throat> for me, I think that um, there's a couple of ways to look at this. One of them is if you are early career, you're just trying to get hired somewhere. Um, you know, today, something like React is still probably the thing I see pop up in job descriptions most often. Um, and so kind of going down that path, um, you know, like, let's be honest, we, this, I do this because I love it, but it's, it's also a paycheck. Um, that, that's important. We live in a capitalist society and that's the reality of it. So, you know, if, if that's kind of where you're at, um, I would not worry as much about these tools first. That said, um, when I started my career journey, responsive web design was this newish kind of thing that had just started to bubble up and most companies weren't doing it yet. Some of the companies that were a little bit more in tune to mobile still had kind of their dedicated M dot mobile site, but you know it was two completely separate experiences, desktop and mobile. Um, and I can remember being in the room with more senior developers and knowing more about responsive web design than them, um, and being the person who kind of got asked about a lot of stuff because of that. Um, and so it was, it was one of those like. I learned about it earlier than I needed to, but it was very beneficial a year or three down the road. Like it was like kind of a, you know, investing in a future payout for my career kind of thing. So that's it. If time allows, it might be interesting to explore tools like Svelte or Astro um, because I think they're going to either they or tools like them will become a lot more prominent uh, in the coming years and will position you in your career in a way that ignoring them now and then trying to play catch up will not. Um, I could be wrong about that. It's a, it's a guess. It's a gamble. Um, but uh, it's one that I, I think uh, might be a pretty good one. Um, the other end of this is that I have seen these tools come and go enough that I feel really strongly that betting on the web platform itself is always a good bet. Um, you know, if you really understand the fundamentals of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, you will be able to more easily move from whatever new tool is popular right now than someone who who has not. Um, you know, if you learn just React, some of those concepts are readily transferable to say something like like Vue, um, maybe. Um, but uh, you know, if you know vanilla JavaScript, you can very you can more easily pick up React, Vue, Svelte, etc. Because a lot of those core concepts are are kind of the same across them. Um, so yeah, long winded way long winded way of saying it depends. Uh, it depends on your goals. It depends on how much time you have to really kind of invest in learning different things. Um, 
you know, if you're someone with minimal time, um, you can probably ignore them for now. Um, but if you do have a little bit of spare time, it can, I think it can be very career beneficial to kind of be a little bit forward thinking on some of this stuff. It's an interesting way to not be sort of stuck in your ways, too, because I know that, you know, I was taught by older IT guys or I was taught by older like web devs just reading online or whatever. And then I'm kind of even in a way sure I'm I'm going to be different than them, because like you said, responsive design was kind of new for us. I think it was responsive design was sort of on like well on the rise. But then there was the uh, the classic, you know, is Flexbox really useful? Like, should we, you know, not use Flexbox? I remember there was a couple of those articles out there <laughs> and it's sort of like, oh, my God, like, do we switch to Flexbox, Mike? Like, what do we do? Uh, and like, you don't want to get stuck in your ways because even in a way it's like I learned Flexbox and now I don't use grid. I just refuse to learn grid for whatever reason. Learned it once. Don't use it for years. Forget about it. Come back. Learn it again. Don't use it again. So it's, you know, I, I like the approach that you mentioned where you sort of if you have that time, that little bonus hour or whatever, you can learn the future thing and kind of future proof yourself. Hopefully, hopefully the tech goes that direction still. And then, uh, you know, you're not stuck in that. You're not stuck in that original way that you learned things. Yeah, I just I remember when I was interviewing for my I used to work in human resources and I was kind of migrating over into web dev uh, and I I interviewed with a hiring manager at the company I was already working in in HR and uh, I asked I asked them what their approach to mobile was for kind of the suite of apps they manage and mm -hmm. uh, their response was oh that's a trend and one that I think is pretty much over with no one wants to do this on their phones. And you know, that was like eight or nine years ago now. I just regularly think back to how wrong they were and their prediction about mobile. And I always, I think one of the things I always get a little bit worried about in my own career is like, I'm I'm quick to dismiss some of these trends because they, they often feel like, over-engineered or too much for me. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always, because of that, I'm always a little bit like, oh man, am I, am I one of those like old and out of touch? No, it's the kids who are wrong kind of, uh, <laughs> Mr. Skinner types or, yeah. um, you know, uh, so yeah, we'll see. Um, I still haven't decided if state-based UI is going to stick around forever or if it is a fad that will go away. Um, it seems like a little bit of both, like it's going away, but it's migrating to the server. So I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I can see that. I, th I think that's where I'm at too. I think it's more of a migration to the server, but honestly, great discussion. This is, this is the stuff that I think about on a daily basis, just for the audience out there. <laughs> like, I constantly think like, where are we going? What's the next three years going to look like? What's the next four years going to look like? And we can never guess like correctly. But I think it's, it is really important to A, have these conversations and B, just keep looking forward a little bit. And like Chris said, if you have that extra hour during the day, uh, look up a new tech and try, try it out. Something that you've heard of a couple of times or something that really caught your eye. It's an important part of our careers. But again, the other part is make sure you have a little bit of balance. Like you don't want to work eight hours a day and then work on Svelte eight hours the next, you know, next eight hours and then burn out in a week. It's important to have that balance. Um, and it's important to keep looking forward. And again, Chris, really appreciate you coming on. Don't want to take up too much more of your time. And uh, we're for sure going to have you back on, I'm sure, in the future in a year or two and discuss where we actually did end up. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, just for anybody who's listening, uh, if you want to dig into kind of this and kind of other related topics, I put together a um, a page just for listeners of the show with a Ooh. bunch of additional resources over at gomakethings.com slash HTML, all the things you can include dashes or leave them out. It'll get you there either way. Um, uh, just, you know, that way people don't have to go hunting around. They can, they can kind of find all the stuff in one spot. Awesome. Love it. And we're definitely going to put that link into the show notes as well. Uh, so watch out for that. And anything else you want to pitch? Floor is yours, Chris. Anything else you want? Any shameless plugs? No, I mean, if you if you know if, if you listen to this and you agree with me strongly or really strongly disagree and think I'm an idiot, <laughs> uh, you know, go make things.com. You can find all my contact information. Tell me how right or wrong I was. Um, I love chatting with people. So um, yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. Thank you for being on the show. And uh, 
Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's socially awkward. I'm the same way. No worries. <laughs> thanks for having me, guys. It was really great being on. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that interview as much as we did, but it is time to end, but not before we thank our $3 tier patrons, Ryan Gadgel from Blue Black Digital on blueblackdigital.com, Chris from Selfmade Web Designer on selfmadewebdesigner.com, Tim from The Web Hacker on thewebhacker.com, Viv Hashash from 9 Block Media on 9blockmedia.com, Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com, Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca, Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se, Jeff from Twitter via at the Jeff McHale, Fire Ant Season via fireantseason.com, and Watoto Coding via watotocoding.com. Feel free to leave a comment or a review in the platform that you're listening to this on. And this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.